With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance podcast on money, investing, the economy, and why they matter. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 24. It's titled Timeshares, Preppers, and Permanent Portfolios. I've taken the podcast on the road today. I'm in Park City, Utah, staying at the Marriott Mountainside Resort, where I am part owner. I own a portion of the resort because 10 years ago, I got an offer in the mail to come down with my family and stay for four or five nights for free. In exchange, they would, I would meet with a sales rep and they would tell me about the exciting opportunity to own in Park City, Utah. Being the smart finance guy, I said, there's no way in heck I'm buying a timeshare. And that's how I went into the meeting. And I left owning three weeks. I paid $17,500 per week, and I committed to paying an annual maintenance fee for the rest of my life and the life of my children, unless I decide to sell back my ownership to Marriott, who would gladly take it back, paying me one-third of what I originally paid. Someday you will get such an offer, and I want to share with you the economics of timeshares so that you do not make the decision I made. Now, in retrospect, it was not necessarily a bad decision. I did not overpay, and but what I did not anticipate was two things. First, Airbnb came along, and second, Google Street View came along. How does that have anything to do with timeshare? Well, the, when I bought, the only competition to timeshares really was staying in a hotel. And the resort here, the rooms are bigger. And with our three kids, we were finding we were needing to rent two hotel rooms. And I thought, all right, here's a way that we can stay somewhere and have ample space. And, and that's very, very true. But now with Airbnb, we can do the exact same thing, rent somebody's home and rent it for cheaper than a timeshare. You could rent homes 10 years ago, but what you couldn't really get is it was hard to get transparency exactly what you were renting, what the neighborhood was like. Typically, you would see pictures of the house and a few reviews. Now with Google Street View, you can, you can see the entire neighborhood. You can take a tour. And we did this the first time we rented a home back in, in 2009. We rented a place in Maine for two months, and we knew the neighborhood before we even stepped foot into the property. One reason you shouldn't buy timeshares is it, you give up the flexibility to know exactly what things are going to be like 10 years from now. And then we, we had no idea Airbnb would come along. But back to the numbers. Here's how the numbers work for timeshares. The upfront payment in our case, $17,500 per week. From the timeshare resort's perspective, that you're buying a slice of their property. 
or now Marriott has converted to a point system and many of the other timeshare companies have gone to a point system. So their properties are put into a trust and then they sell points or access so you can go to all the different properties, which is, a, which is an advantage. But that upfront payment from your perspective, yeah, you have an ownership, but it's really just, it's, an, it's the right to stay in a property for the rest of your life. And you can actually take that upfront payment and since it's a prepayment, basically each year you're paying for the right to stay at that property. They just discount it back into one number. And so, and I, and I won't go through the math here. I'll include it in the show notes so you can see. But we were effectively, when we bought, paying $100 per night to stay, just for the right to stay at the property. So $100. The second piece is the maintenance fee an annual maintenance fee, which covers the operating cost of the property. It covers replacement costs for the roof to redo the pool, and it covers property tax. So those three things at the time that we bought, it's a weekly charge, but on a per night basis, it was about $120. So in my mind, I was looking at $100 per night for the right to stay, $120 maintenance fee, total $220, cheaper than renting two hotel rooms, plus we get more space. Plus, they're going to give me two, $300,000 Marriott points. And, and they probably gave me other things. They probably gave me, a, I don't know, a plaque or something for spending so much money. I bought. And it, it's worked out fine. We have the flexibility. But, but honestly, now that they've converted to this point system, we have a hard time using them. That's why I'm here. Park City alone, my family's not even coming down for a couple of days. We've, we've bought. We've, our friends are staying in a different resort that we bought. Or with our points, and we're trying to use our points up. So if you get the offer in the mail to go somewhere exotic and stay for free, it's a great deal. But go in with steely resolve not to purchase a timeshare property. So I got an email this week from a listener, Keith, and he kindly took me to task for a comment I had made in, I believe, both episode 20 on how to allocate your assets and episode 21, investing without a map. And I had discussed how the stock market in the U.S. or around the globe could fall 40% or more in a couple of weeks. And it has, at times, always recovered. But I also said, what would happen if it, instead of months, to recover, it took decades. And here was his question. I would ask, what recovery has ever taken decades in modern times? Imagining a decades-long recovery would also require us to also, to also imagine extreme civil upheaval or revolution to go along with it. This is getting into imagining doomsday prepper scenarios, and I certainly wouldn't start stockpiling weapons and food in a bunker along with imagining how to financially weather a decades-long recovery. His point is making plans for such extreme events for decades-long recovery seems, seems somewhat ridiculous, ludicrous, and... And perhaps it is. I My point is I think it's important to recognize that the extreme can occur. The extreme is occurring right now 
in Russia. The Russia stock market is down over 20% in this year alone after the situation with Ukraine. And it's interesting, Keith mentions the, this idea of it would have to, the, such extreme events would have, have to accompany some type of revolution. And there was an interesting blog post that I saw this week from Cam Hui, H-U-I, and he writes, his blog is called Humble Students of the Market. And he actually addressed this scenario. He, he was showing times where markets took decades to recover after losing significant value. He was quoting from the Credit Suisse annual book of stock market returns. That, that's not the name of it. If you go to the show notes, I'll have the link to the book as well as the link to Cam Hui's post. But the, in 1900, one of the leading economics powers was the Austro-Hungarian Empire going into World War I. After World War I, that empire no longer existed. The countries that made it up, basically, they're now separate companies, countries. But he, the, the book shows that the, the aggregate, the returns of those countries that made up, of the, that made up the Austro-Hungarian Empire, it's taken over 70 years for them to recover what they lost on an inflation-adjusted basis. Two other examples Cam gives is the German stock market, the Japanese stock market, both lost over 90% of their value following World War II and took over a decade to recover. The Chinese stock market lost 100% of its value following World War II because in 1949, the communists took over and closed down the stock market. So, yeah, it's possible to have significant losses, and they do, as Keith points out, and Cam points out, accompany periods of conflict, war, or confiscation. But the U.S., to some extent, standpoint, is, is kind of an outlier in the sense that, it, yeah, there's been war, but it's been able to overcome it. Now, are we going to have war in the future? I don't know. Hopefully not. Peace is incredibly helpful for long-term investment returns. I'm not suggesting we become preppers and assume that doomsday scenarios are highly probable. I have, in, in previous podcasts, said, especially talking about risk and how risk is more things can happen than will happen And it's important to not have everything in our financial life tied to paper assets in the financial system. In other words, have pockets of independence away from the financial markets. The primary way I do that is I own land. And I have mentioned that I have some food storage out at our farm, not for a prepper scenario, but in case we get a huge storm or something occurs, we have some water stored. So you can, you can prepare, have some pockets of independence away from the financial markets, have some cash at home in case the ATM system gets stuck with a virus and you need cash. These are simple preparations for potential extreme events that are highly unlikely. But again, 
they're not the most likely outcome. We just need to be aware of them. So I got another email this week from Jake. And well, let me before I talk about that, let me talk about Adam. Adam wrote me and he wanted to know, he looked at how I was investing, where I have a home base, I move in to asset classes that are attractive when there's a fat pitch. And he thought, gee, that has to be highly tax inefficient. What type of taxes are you paying if you're constantly moving in and out of your portfolio? I replied to him, one, I, much of my assets are tax deferred, such as an IRA. Two, I invest primarily in exchange traded funds or, or using smart beta, which are highly tax efficient. And three, I am cognizant of it. So I, I'm not turning over my portfolio. I try to hold assets at least a year so I don't incur short-term capital gains tax on them. But also, I just want to, I'm, I'm mindful of the tax impact whenever I sell and I factor that in. But I, as I admitted in episode 21, how to invest without a map, for most people, it's just not practical to necessarily be moving in and out uh, of assets, at least as much as I'm doing. And I want to share with you a way to invest that, that I also invest. I mean, if you look at how I invest, you'll see that the portfolio is diversified, and it's diversified in a certain way. And this way of investing is really what's called role-based investing. In other words, you have elements of your investment portfolio that serves a specific role or protects against a specific economic scenario. And the particular economic scenarios are things are going well, where there's long-term economic growth, which is the primarily primary scenario where you Ideally, as we talk about permanence, as we discussed in the last episode, what's not going to change? Hopefully, capitalism won't change. Hopefully, we'll continue to have long-term economic growth. I gave some examples just a few minutes ago where those things were severely disruptive. And when they are disruptive, they change and can cause severe losses, which at times, if it's that extreme, can take decades to recover, if not recover at all. I mean, the Chinese eventually restarted the stock market, but that didn't help those investors that were there invested in 1949. So global growth is the primary scenario, and the asset class to hold for that is global equity. Other scenarios would be inflation, a super high inflation. That's a potential scenario. Are there assets you hold for that? What about deflation when prices are falling? What assets do you hold for that? And a fourth role would be just mass chaos and huge volatility. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts where your money can earn 11 times the national average. 
and automated investing technology like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Now, one author that came up with, was one of the original ones that came up with sort of this role-based scenarios is a concept that Jake mentioned in his email, and it's called the Permanent Portfolio. And it was designed by a financial advisor named Harry Brown. And he wrote a book back in the 80s called Fail Safe Investing, Lifelong Financial Security in 30 Minutes. I've not, I've not read the book, but what I've read about the permanent portfolio, I've, I've gotten online and I, I have a basic understanding of it. And the concept makes a lot of sense. And I agree with it. Having roles within your portfolio. In the permanent portfolio, he has four. A, things are going to go well, swimmingly, global growth. And the bucket for that is global equity. And he puts 25% in each of these buckets, so 25% in global equity. To protect against inflation, Harry Brown recommends 25% in long-term government bonds. The third bucket is the inflation bucket, and he recommends 25% in gold. And the fourth bucket for when all things fall apart or there's just huge volatility 25% 25% in cash. And the idea is you rebalance this portfolio once a year, 25% in each bucket. In my old firm, my old investment advisory firm, we have a similar approach where we have four buckets. In our case, it's global equity for when things are the sort of the base case of, of global economic growth. We have global fixed income instead of long-term fixed income, but a the diversified portfolio of global fixed income. We have, instead of gold, we have what's called real assets, which would include real estate, timber, perhaps some commodities, but things that are there to protect against inflation. And our fourth, instead of cash, 
we have something called, or a bucket called diversifying strategies, which is really an investment in, in hedge fund-like strategies that are there to protect against the downside, but capture upside. And so through manager skill, deliver return that ideally is highly uncorrelated with other asset types. So in our case, we were not putting 25% in each in the permanent portfolio. But this idea of a long-term investment strategy and having asset types that cover each role is very sound. And if you look at my portfolio that I showed a graph over time of by asset types, it's also divided in that way. I have a global equity component. I have a inflation protection component in terms of real estate. I have a deflation component in terms of fixed income. And I have a everything's falling apart and want some protection that dampen volatility in terms of cash. And so how do I differ from the permanent portfolio? Well, one, I'm not 25% in each. And, and the weights, one could come up with various ways to choose the weights based on risk tolerance. If you listen to episode 21, I would say don't necessarily use modern portfolio theory to choose your weights, but just make sure you have an aspect to, in your portfolio for each of those roles. I don't hold long-term government bonds, and we discussed that last week in episode 23, how volatile they can be because of the long-term government bonds have their duration, which is measures their sensitivity to interest rates. In the U.S., those long-term bonds are up 17% this year. We're in a, in a p- position where historically rates are near their historical lows. And if we get in a period of rising rates, these long-term bonds will be killed. So I don't think now is a great time to be holding long-term bonds. But those that advocate this permanent portfolio, they would say, no, go ahead and do it. Because the idea is that each of these different buckets will offset each other as economic scenarios take place. I'm a little more pragmatic and say, I don't want to go into long-term bonds now when rates are at historical lows. I would have preferred to have gone in in the 1980s, not that I was investing then, when rates were 13 to 15%. So we've had a secular downtrend in interest rates. Eventually, that's going to reverse. That's why I hold a global diversified portfolio of bonds. I have some emerging market bonds, and then you can look at the types of bonds that I hold. Now, let's talk about inflation protection. Harry Brown recommends gold as a way to protect against inflation. I'm a little concerned about that because over the long term, gold has kept up with inflation, but it's been extremely volatile. And the reason why gold is volatile is it doesn't have what's called ballast. In here in Idaho, when it snows, those that have two-wheel drive pickup trucks put sandbags in the back to balance to anchor the truck so it's not sliding all over in the snow. The inflation hedge asset types that I think are more appropriate have this ballast. They, real estate, for example, pays rental income. 
And, and that, those rents, because rents are a portion of the calculation that governments use to calculate inflation, rents tend to be highly correlated with inflation, much more so than gold. And as rate, rents go up, the value of the private real estate goes up. That's because that's how you value private real estate. So there's balance. There's that income component. Gold doesn't have that. Now, you might want to hold gold. If you do hold gold, my, my preferred method is through gold coins. Hold the physical gold because you're, it's separated from the market. It's not tied. You know, gold is volatile mainly because of all the, what's going on in the futures market for gold, and which can be very, very volatile. If you hold it physically by buying coins, then... One, you don't have to worry about how the price is moving all over the place. You don't see it every day, out of sight, out of mind. But you also hold the assets away from the financial markets. So that would be one way to hold gold. I prefer private real estate as a better inflation hedge. And But that that's the permanent portfolio, a role-based investment approach, very low turnover, and, and I think very, very effective for most investors. So last week, there was a big announcement in the fixed income world. Bill Gross, who was co-founder and chief investment officer of PIMCO, one of the largest bond managers in the world, and who was portfolio manager or one of the portfolio managers for the PIMCO Total Return Fund. I believe that is the largest bond fund in the world. He was leaving the organization and joining Janus and effectively left immediately. And PIMCO is probably one of the, the, especially the total return bond fund, one of the most widely held bond funds in the world in terms of it's in 401k plans for U.S. investors. Many institutions invest in PIMCO through the total return bond fund, through institutional shares. I know at my prior firm, we, at least when I was there, we had billions of dollars of exposure to that fund and had been investing with PIMCO since the mid-1990s. We, I, I'd been on site in Newport Beach at PIMCO's offices a number of times. I had not personally met Bill Gross. He wasn't there when I was there, but I saw his chair, kind of this, this crown-like thing, the chair where Bill and his lieutenants sat was kind of raised elevated over the trading floor so they could look down and and pontificate or whatever they did but uh bill did give me a book and signed it although it had the wrong name on it <laughs> gave that away but he left and here's the thing with when you use active managers one and i spent many years and and co-ran a research group where one of our tasks was to research managers and find those that were skilled and could effectively forecast the future and take advantage of it. And and the problem with that is skilled managers go through periods of underperformance and unskilled managers can get lucky. And so it's very hard to differentiate between the two. Plus, the organizations are changing. Investors in PIMCO, which is a skilled investment shop and has outperformed the bond market, over a, a 10-year and longer period, investors have to decide, all right, how important was Bill Gross to that team's success? 
he wasn't a solo shop, but he was the chief investment officer. He was the 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 one of the the main, if not the face of the firm, and was instrumental in building out the team. How how now that he's gone, will performance lessen? Or is the team so effective that they can continue on without them? And that's a judgment call investors need to make. I didn't hold any PIMCO exposure. My father or my my stepfather or my parents did. They had one PIMCO fund. Uh, they're, they're the one account that, that I help oversee, that and my mother-in-law's. Those are the only two accounts other than my own assets that I oversee and that I want to oversee, believe me, at this point in my life. I sold the PIMCO fund within minutes Friday morning of hearing the news. Here's why. I, when, I don't want to wait around to decide how important PIMCO or Bill Gross was at PIMCO. With so many institutions holding that and giving Muhammad Alarian left earlier this year, there is enough turnover in the organization to scare the wits out of institutional investors. And, and they will be sellers. And you potentially could see 20 to 30% or more of assets leaving that, that fund family from PIMCO. And leaving, which means PIMCO will be sellers of bonds. And in the, the way that the bond market works, it's important to remember the bond market is not like the stock market where you, you sell things through an exchange. In other words, there's always, a, there's always a seller and a buyer, and they match up and they come up with a price. The bond market is a dealer market. And so that if PIMCO sells, they're selling to a dealer that is taking on that inventory. And, and that is an area that's not, not been terribly effective the last few years following the financial crisis. Dealers don't want excess inventory. And so there's a potential to be pressure on some of these bond prices that, that PIMCO holds. And so given the potential outflows from the firm, I exited. I obviously don't give investment advice here, so I'm not saying what you should do, but I'm, I'm sharing with at least one of my concerns with the organization and the developments at PIMCO. Now, I've been to Janus and visited them. I, I wish Bill well at his new fund. I'm not investing in it, but I, I tend to like to invest in, in bigger teams, and, and he would need to build out his team at Janus. That is episode 24, Timeshares, Preppers, and Permanent Portfolios. You can get show notes for this episode at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's also where you can sign up for my weekly insider's guide where I will email you the show notes. That's where I also answer listeners' questions, provide clarifications of things that didn't make it into the podcast. I email that out very shortly after the podcast episode is released and uploaded so you can have that at the time that you listen to the podcast. If you have any questions on this episode, suggestions for future topics or other issues, you can email me, jd at jdavidstein.com. You can also reach me via Twitter, at jdstein. Just a reminder, everything I've shared with you in this podcast episode is for general education only 
I have not considered your specific situation or risk profile. I have not provided investment advice. I'm simply providing general education on money, investing, the economy, and why they matter. Next week, episode 25.